to The Content Lab, the weekly podcast for content marketers about the strategies and tools you need to create addictive content your audience will love. I'm your host, Liz Murphy, Impact's content strategist. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I want to start off this week's episode with an announcement because it is a pretty great week this week. And here is why the dark times known as summer have come to a conclusion. And now it is officially and finally fall. Not only is this my favorite season of the year, this means that people can no longer shame me with cries of seasonal creep regarding my gratuitous inclusion of pumpkin in any and all caffeinated beverages. So they can suck it because I feel vindicated. Anyway, it's still crazy to me, however, that next week is October. I don't know how or when that happened, but I'm not going to complain. Anyway, let's move on. Today's topic is one that is admittedly a little bit selfish. Back in July, HubSpot's VP of Marketing, Megan Keeney Anderson, wrote this great article for HubSpot's Think Growth publication called What Happened to the Internet? In it, she talks about how we've moved away from an internet where content went out based on merit to one where giants like Amazon, Facebook, and Google now have control over who wins and loses when it comes to content. On the one hand, I found her well-researched article extremely fascinating because the implications for marketing and society at large are significant, to say the least. On the other hand, though, if I'm being completely honest, I'm kind of freaked out. A lot of what she talks about brings to the surface these personal fears of mine uh, as a content creator. And I just, I wanted her to come on and kind of talk me off the ledge because the questions I have in my mind right now are how can I be sure if I put all this effort into a killer content strategy that it's even going to get seen? And if we know that Google is making these clear strides toward keeping people on Google when they deliver search results with on-page answers and featured snippets, How do I even have a chance of driving traffic to my website anymore if I'm going out of my way to create content? How do I even begin to wrap my brain around decentralized native content strategies on social media platforms like Facebook? And did Franco lie to me? You know, we had a couple of weeks ago where Franco was telling me, no, don't freak out about the robots. The robots are our friends. But will those very same robots that Franco said I didn't need to worry about replace us living, breathing content creators? Thankfully, Megan joined me this week to answer all of those questions and more in an effort to make sense of what's happened to the internet and why and what these changes mean for content creators, strategists, and managers like us. Before I kick it over the conversation, don't forget to stick around after my interview for this week's One Thing and the Weekly Awesome. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Megan. Well, today I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Megan Keeney Anderson, VP of Marketing from HubSpot, to the Content Lab. Welcome, welcome. Happy to have you. Thank you so much. I I hear this is the place to come if you're a content nerd, so I'm psyched to be here. Definitely. It's a place for nerds, not for cool kids, unless you're a cool kid who happens to be a nerd, in which case, let's get down. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) So VP of marketing, in the context of of a big company like HubSpot, what exactly does that look like? What does that mean for you? Yeah, so um, so my world at HubSpot um, is I own a couple of different areas. So I um, lead our product marketing team, which is responsible for how do we bring new 
software to market? How, how do we describe that software? What are the stories we tell about it? How do we get people excited about it? And obviously there's a content component there as well. And then I also lead the actual content team and that's um, all of the creators of anything you can really consume from HubSpot. So our blogs, our podcasts, social media is in there uh, now. Um, we've got a really cool like multimedia content team that works on interactive components to usually our product launch campaigns um, and PR and communications as well. So how do we tell our stories through um, earned, earned media on different platforms? That's kind of my, um, my expertise in my area at HubSpot. There are a couple of um, other VPs who work specifically on acquisition and specifically on sort of customer marketing and monetization um, of our free users. But uh, my world is kind of almost at the, the awareness stage of how do we first pull people into HubSpot? What I love about what you do though, and what originally connected us is that you have an affinity and a love for us content nerds, for us content creators. And you're also a big fan of writing yourself. So you know kind of what we're going through and what we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I was an English major as an undergrad. I started my career and I knew two things. I wanted my, my career to be write, really writing intensive and I wanted to work at a place where people were passionate about what they were doing and really just kind of throwing themselves at it. So I started my career as a copywriter for a nonprofit, which I thought um, blended those two things beautifully and, and did blend those two things beautifully. And I just got really drawn to the tech space after a while um, because I started to see the role that tech was playing in exposing people to content and, um, and mixing up the formats of content that you could create and making the barrier to entry of that really, really low. Um, and I, so I fell in love with the internet and with kind of digital, um, content and marketing, uh, pretty, pretty rapidly after that. So how long have you been at HubSpot now? I've been at HubSpot for, um, I think like seven and a half years. So what was your entry point there? Were they like, come aboard, BVP like immediately? <laughs> <laughs> no. In fact, I, I always joke around here that I kind of uh, found my way in through the back door. So I was a solo marketer at a startup called Performable, awesome company. Um, and I, I had been there for about five months when HubSpot decided to acquire Performable. Um, and so I came in not, you know, thankfully HubSpot wanted to keep everybody who was at Performable. So I had a job, but I didn't really have a description of that job. It was like, oh, okay, so you're here now. What would you like to do? Uh, and so my career here is sort of developed just by uh, actually, I think you and I spoke about this the last time. Just yeah. Kind of like chasing after what was in interesting work and interesting projects. And over time, people left, new opportunities opened up, and it sort of developed into this really interesting combination of the tech side of my brain, which is like the products and the software that we launch, and the content side of my brain, which is all the um, materials and content we create around it. Yeah, we, we did talk about this, and it's oddly enough that that was kind of how my journey ended up at Impact as well. So when Quintain merged with Impact, I got very lucky that they wanted to keep me, but I mean, in full transparency, Bob was like, so what exactly it is that, that, that you do here? But he meant it, you know, in a bit, you know, and he's like, okay, I think I get the skill sets that you're bringing to the table, and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> And so as a result, you know, it reminds me very much of that conversation where you said something very profound to me, which is chase ideas, not job titles. 
which I thought was very cool. But we're not here to talk about job titles. <laughs> we're here because I am, this is a selfish podcast. I need, I need you to help me stop panicking. That's really, that's really the goal here. So um, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away called Medium, and specifically July 16th, <laughs> you wrote an article for HubSpot on, you have the Medium publication, Think Growth. Mm-hmm. And it was called, what happened to the internet? And I almost half expected it to be a lot of things, some good, some bad. We're still figuring it out. The end. This has been a medium <laughs> post by Megan Kinney Anderson. But, <laughs> but in it, you talk about a lot of fascinating shifts and changes. Yeah. You know, how content is becoming centralized across three different platforms. Mm-hmm. How, the importance of paid and how that's kind of coming back into style. A lot of things that excite me but also as a content creator kind of make me dry heave in a dark corner when nobody's looking because it's like, okay, wait, does my rule still matter? Because people keep telling me, you know, content is important. Content needs to be better. But you know, now with Google's featured snippets, uh, you know, like, are they even going to see what I'm writing anymore? You know, I'm just having this existential crisis where it's like, Robots, when illustrated appropriately, are absolutely adorable, but they are completely freaking me out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I got you, Liz. So take a breath. Um, (laughs) No, it's funny because that post actually started from a place of panic in my own mind where I was like, something's different today. Like something has happened to the internet, um, which is where that, that title came from. And I think that the the, sh- the big shift that we're seeing is it really is a fundamentally different internet today than the internet that I certainly I got my start in, right? When I first, uh, you know, came, was early in my career, the great promise of the internet was that it was this great meritocracy. And anyone who had a good idea, didn't matter how much budget you had behind it, didn't matter, matter who you are, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog, like, you could get your idea out there. And it was this beautiful land of the value of ideas. That was at least my idealized version of what the early internet was. And we're talking like, you know, 2003, 2004, when I really, when I'm talking about early internet here. Uh, Back when LiveJournal was still a thing. Yes, correct. (laughs) Uh, And today, you know, it, there's a lot that's changed, right? So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I'll tell you my true freakout moment. So I was um, in charge of the content team at HubSpot. It was the middle of t- uh, 2017. And we had been sort of sitting pretty for a while. Like we have, we have incredible content creators. I'm so proud of this team. And they were every year like growth after growth after growth uh, based on the value of the content that they had. And then somewhere around, somewhere between like 2016 and 2017, all of a sudden, our growth numbers started to flatten out. They started to plateau. Um, I called it the great flattening of 2017. And I, everybody was like really panicked because we were like, have we hit a ceiling? Is this it? Like we found the end of the internet. There's no more keywords. There's no more content that we can create that will bring more people in. And then what do we do when we hit that ceiling? And then this magical thing happened where uh, uh, Moz, it was Moz first, uh, released their organic traffic numbers. And I noticed a very similar flattening right around 2016, 2017. And then, um, oh, Buffer. 
I love the folks at Buffer. They're so transparent about what they do. They released this awesome blog post that says, hey, our traffic, our referral traffic from social media is half what it was last year. And they're a social media company. Do you remember that post? It made total waves. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember seeing this and having kind of the same feeling. My initial reaction, honestly, was, oh, marketers ruin content now. Because you know how we, like, ruin stuff. Like, we find a beautiful thing and then beat it to death with a hammer and then wonder why consumers get scared and run away. (laughs) Why they're filtering us out like they used to filter ads out. Exactly. Um, so, So that was, like, evidence number two. And evidence number three was WordPress um, actually released all the traffic to all of the websites that are on the WordPress platform in like aggregate. Same familiar flattening of the curve right around the same time. And so all of a sudden we move from panicked to utterly fascinated. Um, and everybody on the team is like freaking Sherlock jo- Holmes, like trying to figure out what happened to the internet. And so that post that I wrote to bring it back full circle was sort of an assessment of like, what has really changed about the way people discover content online? Um, there are a couple of things, and, I, and I'll kind of break this up and feel free to interrupt me, but uh, one of them is there, there has been this massive consolidation of power online. And really it's, it's three companies that own all the influence, um, at least in US or, or in English-based um, internet, uh, and that's Google, and that's Facebook, and that's Amazon. And the interesting thing about that consolidation is, you know, more, I think 70% of all internet traffic um, goes through either Google or Facebook-owned properties. And when that happens, that means fewer and fewer uh, factors are pulling the strings on what gets discovered. And so that means that um, you really, really have to know how to play within those, those kind of mega giant channels. Does that all make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And what I find fascinating about this is that if, if anybody has been blissfully living under a rock, what they may have missed is a lot of these giants, because one of the ones you're talking about is Facebook, have, have gone out of their way to say that they're not publishers, Right. But what they have done, whether they intention, whether that was their intention or not, is they have become this consolidated, centralized publisher that has a significant amount of control about what kind of eyes get on my content versus not. Yeah. And it used to, you know, social media used to be a pass through channel, right? Like you, you created something on your website, then you promoted it on social media and people would find that. And then they would click through back to your website. But the other thing that Facebook has done and others have done is uh, have really become more of like a walled garden experience inside um, those social channels. And they're trying to solve for their, their users. It's not anything malicious. They're just like, hey, why would we send our users clicking across the internet when we can just pull that content directly in and save them the hassle? Yeah, uh, completely understand that. And not only that, think about it from the perspective of, you know, these are not nonprofits. Right. They have advertisers. They they eyes on site. They also have the same goals that we have, especially yeah. content creators. Is like, how can we keep people on our website longer with us instead of sending them away? Yeah, exactly. So when Buffer talks about losing half of its referral traffic from social, that's what they're talking about. There's just social is not a referral channel anymore. Social is a is a channel, um, one that needs its own strategy, but 
that strategy um, can't convert in the same way that it used to convert. You need a kind of a new playbook. So one of the big insights in that article is you actually need two, um, two content strategies. You need one content strategy for Google and for very active search-driven content. And you need one content strategy for social and very passive discovery based because the two algorithms do not, they're not compatible. operate the same way. All right. And they don't cross. They're, they're very like distinct. And so that was one big change that we made is we stopped. We took a look at each uh, channel and tried to optimize for that channel as opposed to just an overarching content strategy. Um, so that means on social, it's like, okay, what, what content can you make that's native to, to social that's designed to be consumed wholly there? And then how do you use things like messenger to um, convert uh, or to get some sort of a hand raise on social without asking people to leave that platform? Um, and then on search, those rules have also changed quite a bit. Like Google, you mentioned it before, they're, they're leaning heavily into snippets and they want to be more of an answer engine than a search engine. Um, and so what does that mean for the way that you create content? So how do we keep people like, like me then and you, because you're, you're a self-professed content creator and writer, how do you still get the, those eyes on your content? Because I remember there was one thing you said that really jumped out at me that did make me breathe a sigh of relief when I was reading through this. It said, you were talking about how paid has become more important. I know you're going to be talking about that here in a little bit, but you did go out of your way to say that while paid and things are shifting around a lot, that doesn't mean quality is once again on the decline in, term of, in terms of what's in demand, because there was this great quote that you had from uh, Janessa Lance, from, yeah. also from HubSpot, who said it actually costs more to be boring on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that goes back to your Facebook strategy. So I, I was talking with um, uh, the, uh, the head of, of social media for Moon Pie snack cakes, cakes. Do you know what those are? They're like this amazing little snack cakes. And oh, yeah. Pie is awesome on social media. Uh, and, and one of the things that he said was, uh, listen, like, it hurts us all. We're really sad that Facebook became basically an ad platform. But here's the bright side of that. It is the most efficient, effective ad platform on the planet because you're able to understand so much more about the way people are engaging with the content that you're putting out there. And so, uh, and he's right on that. I mean, there's still nothing that holds a candle to the kind of targeting you can do based on, in, based on interest that Facebook offers, for example. Um, and we've, we've done our own sort of tests inside HubSpot where we put, you know, the the same amount of budget behind two pieces of content. Um, but we find that the one that gets higher rates of engagement um, and less of a fall off, that budget will go so much further, which is obvious. It's sort of logical. But if, if you then use your sort of paid spend as this, this um, uh, revolving door of like, every time something organically does well, you, you put paid behind it and you take out something that's not performing as well, it gets really, really efficient. Um, and so really good content still does matter. It's just that it, the mechanism for getting it in front of people is a little bit more, um, uh, it has to be like monitored and, and responded to a little bit more uh, regularly on, on Facebook. Um, so that's one thing is, you know, good, good content still reigns no matter what your 
what your strategy is, what your platform is. There's never going to be a boring piece of content or a bad piece of content that's going to outperform your amazing piece of content, regardless of the budget. Uh, I think the other thing that was a big surprise for me back on the search side of things is I thought snippets were going to eat our lunch. Um, I thought also, I'm worried about to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I, I'm excited about them, but I'm also somewhat traumatized. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're just like, Oh, that's so cheap. Like we work so hard to create this really good piece of content. And then Google just offers up the answer without the click through. Um, and so we were nervous about, about snippets in the beginning, but what we found when we actually dove in and tried to actively capture snippets is that um, in the cases that we were able to capture it, we saw a drastic increase in the click-through rate, frankly, um, of that content. So I'll give you some examples. Um, I'm just gonna kind of pull them up as we speak here. Uh, so we had um, a, this blog post called How to Make a Chart or a Graph in Excel. It was a classic how-to um, blog post. And in 2016, that post had 78,000 visits um, over, over a time period. And Whoa. then in 2017, that post, that same post, nothing else changed, it dropped down to 48,000 visits. And that's a serious drop. That's like half of your traffic. And the main difference was a snippet had shown up and started to rank above our number one ranking post. So the post hadn't dropped down at all. Um, it was still number one in organic results, but a snippet had started to appear that was pulling in content from something that ranked worse, but had was more optimized for the snippet. So that's how step one is like, wow, that was the snippet was eating our traffic. So then we wanted to know what would happen if we actually uh, captured that snippet. Um, and so we did a targeted experiment where we tried to move a bunch of our content that fit snippets well into snippets to see if it would help us at all in terms of traffic or if people would just get the answer and never click through. And what we found was that we were able to move like 10% of our, um, of the keywords we went after, we were able to move into the featured snippet. And just by those, that 10% moving into the featured snippet, we increased our, our monthly organic traffic by like 13,000 visits. And that specific post, how to make a graph in Excel, that article increased in monthly traffic um, by 28% every month. And so what we were finding is people were still clicking through, but what was happening was they kind of wanted to try before they bought, right? So they wanted to get a little bit of a taste of what the content was through the snippet, and then they would click through to read the rest. And at least for us, that's what we've been finding with snippets again and again. We have to work harder to get them, but once we get them, um, it's not hurting our click through. It's actually helping our click through. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's kind of like how what we, what we saw when we were first experimenting with pillar content, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's so deathly afraid to essentially put this massive amount of intelligence around a particular topic, just completely ungated. And we, and it's, it's, it's terrifying because that's something you would have typically gated a long time ago, but people have learned and gotten burned. And I have downloaded many an ebook or playbook or guide that ended up being like, Oh, this one paragraph is helpful. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, now that we've started experimenting with it and really just saying like, let's do it. Let's just be as absurdly helpful as possible. Let's put it all out there. Our pillar pages convert 
above the benchmark of what you look for on a gated landing page. For oh, example. that's really cool. So, it, awesome. it, it, and I, I share that information because what's happening now is consumers in a way have become trained with content. You know, I, I joked earlier about marketers ruining everything, but we kind of do. Yeah. Um, and we, there are a lot of people making enough bad content for a long enough time that consumers at some point started not seeing the value in giving away their email address for something they couldn't taste first or try first. Right. You know, to see if it was exactly what they were looking for. So I guess the featured snippet thing does make me feel a little bit, a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, all this stuff is just it's just movement, right? There's, there's nothing that's going away about the value of content, but you do have to pay attention to the ways in which people are actually consuming it and what, like what they will tolerate and won't tolerate anymore in terms of barriers to that. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the bet that you're always making, and it's always like a rocky time period. And I'm sure you guys went through this is like, can you make up for, um, can you make up for the, the risk that you undertake in terms of like conversion rate uh, by the volume you would get in terms of um, putting a lot more content out for free. That's like one trade-off, right? And you're trying to get the right ratio there. Um, that's the player page thing. On the snippet thing, it's a, it's a gamble too. It's like, can you, um, can you make up for any loss that you might've gotten in giving the answer away on the search engine result page um, by having your content right up front above everything else? And I think that for every company, you kind of have to understand that trade-off and understand what your, what your ratio is. Like at what point is that worthwhile for you? So we always have a target where it's like, we have to get the conversion rate to X in order for this to be worthwhile. In order for us to get rid of forms, we have to get the conversion rate via chat to X. Uh, in order for us to dive deep into snippets, we have to see that traffic you know, doesn't fall off by X percent. So we're always trying to figure out what our line is. Um, and we just, we take, break off little pieces and experiment around it. So I want to throw something out there that I, I have not breathed what I'm about to tell you to anybody else. It's just this weird kind of thing that is, that is bouncing around in my head. So we spend all this time as content creators and, you know, kind of coaching marketers and, and ourselves about how you write for people first. You write for people first. You create content for people first. And what I found in seeing not just how you guys have been, you know, manipulating your blog posts to get them optimized for featured snippets and also some of the work that we've been doing is that it actually creates kind of a robot first experience once you actually get to the content. And I, I don't really have a great kind of declarative thought here, but that does feel a little bit counterintuitive because now when I'm visiting some articles, I feel like I have to scroll a bit through some preamble, like a box or a list that would never be there if it was just purely built for humans. Yeah. And that's what I find a little bit strange is that we're now kind of reverting back in order to solve this challenge because we're trying to, you know, game the robots and get back to the ranking position that we believe we should be at. But once people get there, I, maybe it doesn't bother other people. Maybe it really doesn't, but I usually have to do a bit of scrolling before I get to the actual introduction. I think that's always the dance, isn't it? I mean, if you think back to the early days of the internet, it was about keyword stuffing, right? Like 
everyone was like, oh, we got to rank. So we got to put a keyword into every possible headline. And so it was like, oh, you would go to read this article and there were 150 of the same keywords stuffed in, in these really obvious places. And that was bad. And so is hyper structuring all your content for the sake of these search engines. I think it's like the onus and the responsibility is on the content creator to leverage these new mechanisms for discovering content, but not to overplay your hand to them. Right. So like there's some content that we will optimize for keywords because sorry, that we will optimize for snippets because it makes sense. Um, but there's other content that just doesn't fit that bill and you should be creating the best piece of content for whatever the query is at the moment. I think what's one thing that is really interesting to me is like the whole world is in these pendulum swings, Liz. And so like, I think that when the internet kind of first came around, it was this like glorious age of information. And the real power of that for consumers was like, God, I can find anything. I can read 150 websites on puppies. I can, I have like endless options and endless content to choose from. And I think as a consumer over time, that's actually become kind of a hassle, right? Like you can't decide now where to go to dinner without reading 15 different review sites on which restaurant you should go to. And there's a little bit of like information overload that I think is feeding some, some changes in customer behavior that I think is feeding some changes in technology, right? So I do think that Google and Facebook are trying to get more eyes on their sites, but I also think that they've recognized that nobody's got time to click through 15 different sites to find the answer that they want. And so it doesn't really matter if Google gives you 15 results on page one, if all you want is a simple answer. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of like a dance that goes between consumer behavior, technology that adapts to it, marketers that then adapt to that technology. And as you say, if they do it, if they adapt too much, ruin it all and we have to start again. Yeah, that that's, you bring up a good point there because what's, again, what I love about it, but also what freaks me out about, or what freaks me out about it a little bit is we are now getting to the point where Google and Facebook are doing a better job of solving for the user than we are. And, and that kind of makes sense. We're always kind of following right behind them, trying yeah. to figure out what it is that they're going to do next. But it does make these transitions somewhat clunky because what ends up happening is Google and Facebook are able to serve up exceptional user experiences. Whereas we're sitting around like, okay, what is it exactly that's happening and what are we doing? And even if you do the featured snippet right on one thing, you may do the exact same thing on another and nothing happens. And so you have this box there for nothing. So it is that balancing act. And I'm very curious to see how this ends up settling out because I'm finding now, again, like going back to what I've been working on is that I'm having to insert all of these things that I never would put there because I want to make sure that people get to the point first, like that they want to get to. So for example, if you think about something that's a list, so I've seen this a lot, a lot of featured snippets have to do with lists, like what are the best or the worst or the whatever, and you'll have that big list. And then you pop over, I don't need to see that list, list again, I already saw it. So yeah. it's like I have to scroll all the way back through again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's it's really easy to forget about the person at the other end and just try to game for the algorithm. And I think that burns us every single time we end up in like scorched earth. Uh, so the idea I think is like, 
understand the algorithm, understand the times and places to optimize for it, but never at the expense of your true audience, which is the, you know, the person who's going to be reading it on the other side. Uh, and that's hard. Like, cause there is such a tremendous amount of pressure to, to grow really fast and to, you know, hit that your, your numbers are monthly and to make sure that like you've got more this month than last month. And I understand like every content creator out there is, is grappling with that. Right. And so I don't think the answer is to like shut your mind to the algorithm, to all these like algorithmic uh, strategies. Cause I think that's just, that's just like turning your back and not, not engaging. And that doesn't solve for any humans either. Uh, and I don't think the answer is to try to game every single system that's out there because if there's one thing we know, it's that systems change. And by the time you game the system, there'll be a new system. You're going to be chasing after it for the rest of your life. I think the answer is, as it's always been, and this is not a shocker, like create the most interesting, useful, helpful content that you can and where you can leverage what you know about the way that humans discover content to get it seen. So what do you think content nerds like me are freaking out about that we don't need to freak out about? Um, I mean, I would nip in the bud any concept of like, you're not going to have a job in, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever. Like we will always need people to uh, explain the world to us and, um, and inspire us. And uh, I, I've been in this industry now for like 15 some odd years and there's always a change like this and it's really just a matter of adaptation, but that core never really goes away. Um, there's just, it's just needed work, you know? So I would stop freaking out about that. And I would in general stop like it does nobody any good for you to worry. It does nobody any good. You, not the reader, not, not the industry or the world for you to panic. The only thing that has ever done anyone good is for you to turn panic into curiosity and trying to figure out like, okay, so Facebook's doing this. Why are they doing this? And to try to gain some insights from what you're seeing and pay attention to not just these big technology giants, but also the people that are behind them and um, that are sort of informing their, their strategies and the way that they shift. Um, I always, I just find like panicking even though I've done it myself, like, and I probably will again tomorrow or the next day, um, it's never gotten me anywhere. The only thing that's ever gotten me anywhere was asking questions and trying to, to try something new. What is one piece of advice you would give to a content creator about what they could do differently tomorrow that would make their job better or their output better? or see better results. Yeah. Um, well, there's a very tactical stuff. So like, if you don't know anything about, um, some of these forces that are shaping Google, Facebook, the way content gets discovered, like you should take some time and study it. Right. Um, but I think the other thing that you could do in a little bit more of a, um, I guess a, like a softer, uh, approach is really to understand like what's changing about the way that people consume content and understand the world around them today, right? Because these pendulum swings, they're not, they don't just happen and then they stop. Like there's another one coming, right? So what's going to be, if, to, okay, if the internet started out and was this vast space of information 
And then we're now at this point where we're trying to actually streamline down that information. And that's a human reaction to being overwhelmed. What's next? So right now we're getting, you know, I don't, I don't comparison shop. I ask um, Alexa, oh, sorry to anyone who actually is listening to this <laughs> with one of those nearby, but I ask my, my Amazon. Mine just turned on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know if you just heard that. She's like, I'm not sure I can help you with that. I'm yeah. working on adding more local business. <laughs> yep. So I would ask my voice activated speaker, sorry, listeners, um, you know, to, to buy me some paper towels and it will just buy me paper towels. There's going to be a point at which I'm going to miss the choice that I used to have as a consumer. And there's going to be a point at which I'm going to want more variety in my answers from Google than I'm getting with just like the featured snippet. Um, and so I would think forward to what is that next ten swing of the pendulum going to look like and what are people really going to be wanting when that happens? That is the opposite of what they're getting today. Um, that's like how you think in terms of horizons, you know, you solve for today. Um, but then you're also starting to think about what is, what are the trade-offs we're making today that we're going to miss in the future that we're going to swing back to. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Megan. Uh, if anybody has any questions or just wants to say hi and get in touch with you and tell you how awesome you are, how can people find you? Uh, so I, I'm still like really active on Twitter. I love Twitter. You'll have to, I'm sure people will fight me over this, but you'll have to pry Twitter out of my like cold dead hands. Um, so that's, that's honestly like the most direct way. It's just um, Meg H. Keeney on Twitter. I'm sure you can put that up. Feel free to reach out to me there. You can, um, I'm pretty Googleable too. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn and my email address is everywhere. Um, so feel free to reach out, but uh, I can always use more conversations on Twitter. Awesome. Well, I'm going to have to find a, an excuse to bring you back sometime, but thank you so much for joining me today. It was lovely. Good to see you, Liz. Good to see you too. Thinking back on my conversation with Megan, I feel a lot better. I just need to remember that when things change, in this case, the entire internet, that doesn't necessarily mean that the sky is falling. It does, however, mean that we all need to think differently about how we create content. So this week's one thing, the one thing you can do right now to make your content better is to revisit the Inbound Manifesto on Impact Unveiled last month at Impact Live, or as we affectionately like to call it, the day that Inbound was redefined. And there's a particular passage in that manifesto that jumps out and is basically just hitting me in the face at this point. It's that Inbound is a mindset, a philosophy, a culture. To be inbound is to be helpful with an obsession with leading others to be successful. So your challenge from me to you is to wake up every day now going forward and working on your content while fully embracing this mindset about inbound, where you are utterly obsessed with being as helpful as possible, empowering your audience to be successful in solving their problems and reaching their goals. If you do that, you and your content will win every single time, no matter what platform your content lives on or how the internet continues to evolve. All right, let's get down to the weekly awesome. This one's a little bit down and dirty, super simple for this week, but Grammarly is one of my favorite web tools. It's a writing app that proofreads your messages, documents, and social posts, which helps make your ideas more clear and more to the point, you'll end up looking less like a doofus by avoiding 
you know, spelling mistakes and typos and all those goobery things that can make us look kind of silly when we're writing to people. But the awesome thing is that they're finally starting to beta test Grammarly with Google Docs, which has been a massive, massive gap in the product given how much collaborative content work happens within the Google Docs product suite. Of course, Beta means that it's not fully launched to all users and it doesn't currently include Grammarly premium corrections or the pop-up editor, but you know what? We're moving in the right direction, so I'll take it. All right, thank you for tuning in, everybody. I do have one final announcement for before I wrap everything up today. The Content Lab newsletter is finally launching and will be hitting your inboxes very soon, literally within days. So to those of you who are already subscribed, Keep an eye out for them. It'll be showing up shortly. If you're not, however, now is the time. Just Google Content Lab Podcast, hit that podcast homepage, and subscribe on the form. Or you can also find the link in the show notes. Uh, I have it in there every single week for all episodes. Okay, that's all, folks. Don't forget to review this lovely podcast on your podcast provider of choice. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Carrier Pigeon, whatever. Not only does that help me understand where you see value with the Content Lab, it also helps this podcast get found. But with that, until next week, everybody, bye. Bye.